In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. Because I tell you, if you stick with this niceness doctrine, Jesus is a horrible bore. After a while, you wonder, uh, who needs to be saved, me or him? I mean, it's pretty awful. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army, we recently received this note from Liz who wrote, quote, your ministry has impacted my life deeply by inspiring my husband's walk with Christ. His life has been changed forever. Thank you for helping him be the husband and father that God has called him to be. Did you know that we are a crowdfunded Christian organization supported by people like you who believe in our message? This month, we invite you to partner with us in our great cause. I'm really excited about this guy that we have. We've had him on before. He is a friend. And, and I'm, I'm not just saying this because he's on the show. And you've, you've heard we've done 300 episodes. And I've got a shelf of hundreds of books written for men on families, manhood, children. This guy wrote a book that I would put in my top 10 books that men should read about what it means to be a man. I really believe that strongly about this book. And we both had the first, same first car growing up, a Chevy Love. <laughs> No, no kidding. Yes, I did. Mine was black, though. Yours is probably some yellow color because your book covers. It was baby blue. Do you know what, do you know what uh, love stands for? No. But my friend, oh, a light utility vehicle. But my, <laughs> my friends renamed it. They said little ugly vehicle. <laughs> Dude, mine was so sweet. I, mine had black diamond tuck seats. It was black with pinstriping and gold rims. And it had a, 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 a canvas cover over the back. And it had... Uh, Air shocks. That thing was awesome. Nobody said that to me, but I weighed 220 pounds. <laughs> oh my gosh, buddy. Mine, mine had a license plate holder that said that happiness is being a grandparent. And I did not see that until my friends in high school pointed it out in the parking lot of the high school. <laughs> Dude, back in the day when we drove stick shifts, man, that oh was my a goodness. Uh, I'm not going to lie. There were a few girls got kissed in that truck. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I wouldn't lie either. Then. But, but I'm a married man who loves Jesus, so I want to bring my friend on today, Paul Coughlin. Paul, it's great to have you on the show, man. Hey, thank, great to be back at the gym. Appreciate it. Yeah, and Paul, and like Paul, you, we've had you on for your book, uh, "Free Us from Bullying." You've got an organization called the Protectors, and ten years ago, you wrote uh, "No More Christian Nice Guy," and it's actually the eleventh year now. We've been trying to get this to happen for about yeah. a year and just our scheduling and just me reading the book again. And so uh, we're here ready to rock and roll and to talk about that book, which I think, Paul, is, I if I were to make a list of 10 Christian books for men that guys need to read besides the Bible, your book would be on it because of how profound, the, the profound impact you have when you wrote the book and what a new concept it was. You kind of called the church out a little bit. Well, it did. Um, I think people, it, it's hard to relate to people right now how seemingly controversial the book was back then. Oh. Um, I mean, it was there. I had one, I had one agent uh, who remained nameless, uh, nameless. He, uh, he said, not only is your book unpublishable, it should never be published. Wow. That's what he told me. And, uh, you know, 10 years later, I've written eight books, as you know, and, uh, that book in particular, it has stood the test of time. Mm -hmm. And what I found is that it touched the common chord 
uh, it went across political lines. Very conservative people enjoyed it. Uh, really liberal people. It had uh, it crossed racial divides, and uh, it also just had an international uh, flavor or appeal as well. It's been translated into I think seven uh, languages. Wow. Um, one one writer in particular was a guy from Czechoslovakia, which I haven't forgotten. This is a long time ago. Um, he had a hard time finding the courage to ask the girl of his dreams to marry him. And the book gave him the courage uh, to ask her. And she said, yes. Uh, so anyway, it, it, it has touched a lot of people in very different ways, but frankly, Jim, I didn't, when I wrote it, I, I was, it was kind of like a manifesto. Yeah. I, I didn't see it crossing so many lines uh, but it sure did. It's been a real blessing to be part of it. Well, now, can you tell tell us how many how many books have you sold so far in the last 10, 12 years, 11 years? You know, I it was, it, it was considered a bestseller. I know that. And re- have you tried to figure out the royalty statements? No, um, no. no that's why PhD. I was like, <laughs> well, and these guys yeah. that say bestseller, I go, what, yeah. you go and buy 10,000 copies yourself? So you made it a bestseller, which we know that. Is- so you yourself. Well, that's how, have- that, uh, profiles and. Courage, uh, John Kennedy's book. That's what his dad did. Old man Kennedy bought it, and they found it. They found thousands of them in the in the garage. Yeah, you can do it. Mark Driscoll did it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I hear done. you. Well, you call yourself a recovering nice guy, right? That this is something that you, when you say it was your manifesto, you wrote. You've had to work through this. Sure did. Yeah, yeah. It uh, there was a lot of pain and suffering and misery. Uh, in that book, you know, when you pray for change, yeah. uh, be careful if you get it right, because my goodness, uh, I had to go through some storms. I, Jim, I just saw that my life wasn't working the way that it, it I thought it should, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I came to a conclusion. Um, uh, either what Jesus said is uh, not accurate, or I'm just going to, I might just walk away and tell you the truth, because if this was the faith, that I was supposed to live. I really didn't want anything more to do with it. It was actually pretty damaging wow. and extremely boring, extremely boring what I was told to do. That largely, you know, uh, the, the Christian faith is a, um, uh, a morality tale, only a morality tale. Avoid sin. That's really all that it was about. Yeah. And, uh, after a while, it, it doesn't jive with the with the narrative, and it's also Jim. What happened to me was I began to see a very very different Jesus in the Gospels, and it started with um, Elton Trueblood's book, The Humor of Christ. It's not really a popular topic. Have fun finding the book. Um, it's out of been out of print for a long time. Uh-huh. But in this in this real pivotal book, he argues that unless we admit that Jesus was being humorous and using irony, um, the Gospels don't make sense. So, And he makes a very compelling argument on that front. In fact, it was so compelling, the original draft of the book was the not-so-nice-guy humor of Christ. That was that, that was what I proposed uh, to publishers. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, most people don't know that. And then, Well, you know, Paul, I, I, I spoke uh, at a church on Mother's Day on Jesus' first miracle at Cana, turning the water into wine, and my sermon was about the son's connection with his mother and that it wasn't Jesus being rude to his mother. He was using sarcasm with his mother and only she understood it because, because he goes, Oh woman, what do I have to do with you? And she goes, do whatever he tells you. You know, there was a connection. So there clearly was something going on there between Jesus and then the disciples. Oh, how long must I be with you guys? You know, uh, you see this stuff and you're like, either he was an angry little man or he was, you know, he had a magnanimity about him to pull people in. And, and you know as well as I do, like even just in our interactions, we have humor, we joke around. There's a banter to manhood that I think, I don't think women understand yeah. it. I think for women, it's offensive. But for me, I can go, hey, Paul, yes. you ugly uh, ginger, I- what's going on? And you're like, hey, you big bald fatty. I'm like, dude, I love you, man. <laughs> Oh man! Hey, we're oh, gonna pal, jump right I've in, bro. To, um, I've uh, I've had to, uh, yeah, yeah. Guys, guys love to uh, teasing versus taunting. Yes. The big difference between the oh, two. Yeah. But I, I'd say I, my wife uh, grew up with two uh, sisters, and she didn't have any brothers. 
And so here she is in a home of, of uh, well, four males, if you count our dog, uh, Alder. And, uh, and we tease. We tease each other. And she didn't quite know what to do with that at first. And I said, baby, if we like you, we tease you. Yes. That's how it works. You know? And now she's kind of learned to kind of give it back. And it's really pretty, it's pretty sweet. And if we really like you, we give you a weird nickname. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, like the rock right. and the sons of thunder. Oh man. Hey, yes, I want to, I want right. to jump, I want to jump into this man. And I want to throw you into what we call our rapid fire round. Are you ready for this? I am. So Paul, what I've done is I've just pulled phrases and words out of your book that are not necessarily in the interview, but I think they're really important for guys to understand why they're there. And some of these phrases you use regularly when you speak and when you write. And I, and I think that we need to explain them to the guys. The first one is this niceness doctrine. Yeah. You know, we all get it. We all get the niceness doctrine handed to us every time we go, go to church in many cases, and certainly when we're handed a Bible. And this is where only the nice uh, portions of the gospel are given to us. And we're not really given the weightier, frankly, more complex ones. Also, the niceness doctrine goes like this. Um, if I'm nice to you, you're obligated to be nice to me. And the world goes, it, it makes the world a, a much smoother place, right? Yes. And in many cases, that's a really great thing. But one thing that we're not told uh, often in church is that not everyone plays by the niceness doctrine. There are people who use niceness against you. Yes. And, and I didn't know that uh, for a long time, and I really became fodder for other people's uh, agendas. Right now, Jim, numerous men are not living uh, what God intended them to do because of the niceness doctrine. It is absolutely undercutting them in so many ways. I agree so much. That's That was such a—that phrase, I will carry that phrase with me to the day I die, and you're the one that put that phrase in me. And so there is a quote from your book that really bothered me. Of all the quotes in your book, one really angered me. I'm going to be really honest with you, and I want you to explain it. Okay. You attended a ch thankfully it's not your quote. <laughs> you attended a church when you were no younger. Kidding. Yeah, you attended a church when you were a younger guy, and you had a pastor tell the church to to nothing heroic, and that bothered me. And I know it bothered you. Yeah. Can you tell us that uh, story and and why that was so troublesome? Oh goodness! So I'm I'm sitting there and I hear him say that, and honestly, I I turned around and looked like Linda Blair in The Exorcist. My head almost <laughs> did a, a 360, uh, except for uh, the the spitting out the pea green suit, right? Um, yeah, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe what I heard, and I thought, oh my gosh! I mean, look at our um, look at our example. Mm. Our example. Jesus was unbelievable courageous and heroic and we're being told not to be part of that it's just all part of the i guess the meek and mild um characterization mischaracterization yes that just gets continued from sermon to sermon that jesus needs to die that jesus doesn't exist yes uh, agreed um but he makes us feel comfortable and and i think really jim if you gave most people in church or in life in general, a shot of sodium pentothal, and you let it sit for 15 minutes, and you ask them, why are you at church? You would get some crazy answers. And one of the biggest ones is basically, I just want comfort. Mm. And, and so a nice Jesus brings comfort, but he ain't going to save you for much. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, people ask me this question when I make the statement all the time. So when I pick a Bible, uh, Paul, I go to John 19.30, and it's Jesus on the cross saying, it is finished. And if the Bible translation does not have an exclamation mark there, I don't use that Bible. Because to me, how he died on the cross exemplifies who he was as a man. And I think so many translations, it's like, you know, he dies with a whimper. It is finished. Dude, what? No, the rocks cracked. The camp temple curtain was torn. The thun the sky thundered and lightened. Uh, you know, the dead were risen again. I mean, that there was no way that was a whimper. But that that character caricature of Jesus is not biblical, and that, and that's why I appreciate yeah. your book. You're saying, hey, will the real Jesus stand up? So I appreciate that. So let's uh let's go to the next phrase here. Uh, I've heard you use this quote speaking. I've had you quote this to me on our forum as a life quote for you. I've read it twice in No More Christian Nice Guy. 
And so I want you to talk me through it. And I don't have to ask the question. You already know what it is. I want you to talk me through the Irish proverb. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, that one has gotten a lot of mileage um, in in so many ways. Yeah, so my parents are Irish immigrants. And uh, uh, my dad was from Kimmage, was a slum. My mom is from Mount Joy Square. So the Irish mean a lot to me. And uh, there's a wonderful proverb that says, do not trust a warrior who cannot cry. Mm. I think that's really important. You know, Martin Luther King, among others, says no one is good unless they bear within their character antithesis strongly marked. And that's kind of an egghead way of saying no one is good unless um, we have juxtaposing characteristics. So, uh, for example, you might have someone who is a really good soldier. Um, but doesn't really have a lot of emotional connection. Well, that, that, that can be a very dangerous human being. Mm. And by the way, you can have someone who's got very strong emotional connection, and if they're not willing to use or even believe in righteous violence, they're dangerous too. But there's just dangerous in it. There's just the sin of, of omission as yes. opposed to sin of commission. So ideally, what I was shooting for there was this understanding of a probably a, a rounded out um character of all people but especially men because i think we get it wrong in many cases right we think we just have to be this person who can just stand there and uh, not experience one emotion you know in funerals uh wherever uh we just lost our dog uh, haggis barley mixed stitch was kind of important to mm. uh, your listeners many people know about haggis our care and terrier it was my call to put him down ultimately and i have not cried that much uh, since I lost my parents. Mm-hmm. I mean, that dog meant a ton to me. And I, I wanted my kids to, you know, to see that. I wanted them to see that, you know, dad, dad is not that guy who can't cry. It's very important. The question is, the issue is, we just got to cry at the right things. Um, many men cry because their cable bill goes up uh, $5.32 a month. You know, that that brings them to tears. Um, we just got to we, we, the think the right things need to move us. Yes, I agree. And I uh, spoke at a church last Sunday and told about my middle child's birth and how he almost died. And and I just started. I lost it. You know, and I think there's an appropriate. I'm not going to cry because I hurt my leg or pulled my hamstring. I'm going to cry over emotive things. I'm going to cry. We put our dog Ruger down three years ago. I wept like a baby. You know, I think that men need to realize that there is a place for that. We need to teach our sons and daughters that we are more than this rock, that this rock can also uh, experience the pain of life and deal with it and move on through that. So that was really good, man. Which leads me to my next phrase. Yeah, Jim, we, Jim, we, 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 uh, we pervert our children if we don't do that. We yes. literally pervert them. We we denature them uh, if we don't. That's powerful, man. Well, you know, it's funny. I've noticed as an adult, when I do get choked up, my kids are moved because apparently I didn't get choked up in front of them as much when they were younger. And I don't know if it was because I was younger yeah. myself or was, we were a lot more of a disciplinarian. But as I get older, they're seeing that emotion. And I think it's freeing for them. So the next the next word, Paul, is or the next phrase is counterfeit masculinity. Yeah, a lot has been talked about that, right? I mean, it's it's particularly uh, salient today, and it's been going on for a long time, this whole idea. What is masculinity? You know, the word's only about 100, 125 years old. Oh, It's wow. not found in the Bible. And, and uh, <clears throat> the word is largely, uh, masculinity is largely a social construct. Historically, it has been what um, society wants from a man, what religion wants from a man, um, and what the military demands from a man. Those have been the three, the large uh, defining aspects of what it means to, to be masculine or to not be masculine. And so the 1970s kind of come along and really, really uh, blow that up uh, in, to a large degree. And I think even now, we're still putting the pieces back together as to what it means as part of a social construct. And what I was trying to point out there is there's a whole lot of, of counterfeit masculinity. The one that I think you and I grew up under, Jim, really was this idea that a man is someone who j- just has power, domination, and control. Yes. And uh, obviously, if, if that power is just <laughs> and it's caring and it has grace as well as toughness, then that's a great thing. Um, but it wasn't what we were given. 
uh, in many cases, many times. And it's been damaging. And unfortunately, I think we're in the process of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yes. Uh, I, I remember having this one conversation with this, it was a dinner conversation. And this lady has two young daughters and she was talking about how someone's trying to break in her front door. And, and I said, well, what do you do? I said, do you have a, have a gun? And a, a so-called caring person was there at the dinner party. And she was absolutely offended that I had mentioned that she might use lethal force to defend herself and her two beautiful dollars, uh, daughters from a pervert. <laughs> and I was the bad guy. I was the bad guy for even saying that. And I said, well, what are you going to do? I said, what would you do? And she said, you know what your answer was, Jim? Pray. Move to a better neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, pray. Move. Her, her answer was move to a better neighborhood. She's the heartless one, not me. I agree. And so if we yeah. don't have that, if we don't have that desire, that ability to defend what should be defended, even to lethal means, um, I think that, I think, we're deficient in our masculinity as well. Jim, I've spoke at a ton of men's conferences, but for promise keepers, iron sharp and iron like you. And uh, I, I'm really dismayed afterward, maybe not every time I spoke, but many times I had Christian police officers come up to me and say, yeah, in my church, I'm asked, how can I be a Christian, be a police officer? That is as dangerous as toxic masculinity. That attitude, that philosophy is also dangerous. Well, you know, it's interesting. Because the weak suffer. Yeah, well, yeah, we have the week after your podcast goes live, we have a podcast interview with General Jerry Boykin. And he, he was a founding member of Delta Force. He was at Mogadishu. He was the guy who commanded the start of the, you know, he launched the, the battle there. Uh, he was in Grenada. He was part of the, the, the uh, Pablo Escobar being taken down in, uh, in Medellin. He's been around and he wow. wrestled with that question and came up with the same answer that you and I have come up with. And that is the strong support the weak. Unlike the worship song we sing in church that says the weak will lead the strong, I won't ever sing that lyric because it's not biblical. The weak never lead the strong. God makes the weak strong and then they lead the weak, <laughs> you know? Yes. It's just it's a message right. of niceness to the church through our through uh through our music and worship. And and I tell you it's it's often people with great means who can afford to be so foolish. And you know what's really interesting yes. uh, with another Christian nice great guy call really resonated with uh, poor Christians because they know that if they follow that disastrous recipe, they're going to be chewed up by other people. But if you've got the means to be foolish and it really doesn't matter financially if you're dumb or not, yes. uh, you're still gonna you're still gonna make a ton of money or whatever or just be insulated. You can afford to be so naive, but as Jesus said, don't be naive. That's really good, man. I appreciate that. Well, hey, I want to move in to some things in your book, and I want to unpack the book. So I read No More Christian Nice Guy in 2008. Was it 2008? 2009. And then I read it again in 2019, the, the new revised book. And so there are quite a few differences in there. So if guys have said are saying, hey, I read the book in 2009. Why should I read this 10-year anniversary book? Well, it's totally different. It's really it's a different book. I, I felt like I read a different book, and so tell us about the stylistic changes you made in this tenth anniversary edition. Well, I had a, I, I had a very rare opportunity. It is a rare thing to be able to take a best selling book and then revise it. Most most writers don't get a chance to do that, so I was really grateful for that. And I, I think what happened was I wanted to apply. I had about 10 years of, it, it, it was like I, I don't know, it's like I came up the recipe and it hadn't necessarily been tried in, other than in my mind, right? And so I had 10 years of people consuming my secret recipe, so to speak. And I got a lot of feedback, a ton of feedback. I, you know, Jim, you know what it's like. Any book, any uh, sermon, it, it's an offering, it's an offering you give at that time. Yes. And it doesn't necessarily mean um, that everything in it is, is 100% spot on. Um, but you 
you do the best you can with the time you've been given and you do it. So 10 years later, I just had a lot greater ability to take a look at those ideas that I had and, and frankly add some more wisdom and round them out more in part due to uh, other voices that had come along. And I don't, I don't believe those other voices um, diluted the overall message. Uh, I hope it didn't. Um, uh, I, I think it, uh, I think it elevated it. And I think that this book is ultimately more helpful than the original uh, to most people most of the time. Yeah, you know, as a guy who read both and as a guy who's a big fan of you and what you've done and your ministry uh, to men around this world, um, here's here's my takeaway, just to let you know. So when I looked at the book, chapter two in the old book was titled Jesus the Bearded Woman. <laughs> That's th- that, that chapter is now called He's No Angel. In chapter six of the old book, it was called We're Not Eunuchs. We're, we're not men, we're men, not eunuchs. Now it's called To Be a Man. Chapter says seven was called confused in to vilified culture's view of masculinity. That's gone altogether. And, and, and so, so what my takeaway, Paul, is that you took some things and, and I, and I appreciate, I appreciated the first book because it was so inflammatory. <laughs> it was not nice at all, but I can see the wisdom. You've taken some of these things. You realize this is super, super offensive. And, um, I can probably say the same thing in a, with less, velocity. <laughs> and so you slowed the book down. And I, I really did appreciate that. I mean, in my, 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 my two senses, I like the old book better because it was more in your face, but I realized the wisdom and you had to temper it because now you're 10 years older, you know, and uh, when you, and so I really appreciate that. But what have you learned? What have you learned in those 10 years? You personally, what have you learned as a man that affected the writing of this book? Wow. I mean, that's a great question. I want to back up for just one second. The one chapter that got taken out, this is like uh, inside baseball stuff here. <laughs> it had to be taken out because uh, the book was too long. Oh, so really? I had to make, yeah. So I had to make uh, some major cuts and I was under a pretty tight deadline. It helped. That's for sure. So um, yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah. It's, it's not as hot as it was before, but there's still some little juicy things in there. Oh yeah. Um, they, oh yeah. Will, will hopefully get people laughing. Um, what have I learned within the last 10 years that's it's worth relating to others on this book? Well, in regard to the, well, in regard as a, as a man, I think too, you know, I struggle with the niceness doctrine still. And uh, I didn't realize, Jim, just how much I did. I mean, I did a lot of good work in trying to get it out of my life. Mm-hmm. I've been pretty good about it. But man, it sneaks back in, uh, in, in just really subtle, subtle ways. So I think I was more captivated by that doctrine than even I, I fully uh, realized my, myself. So I still battle it. Um, but I have to say that I think a sign of maturity has been that I don't care as much as what other people think. Uh, if I'm on the right track, that's really what matters. You know, uh, and by the way, Jim, I'm not talking about going around ripping people's heads off. We're <laughs> supposed to speak the truth in love, right? Yes. So uh, it, 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 to be, you know, we, we in the original American Idol, there were three major judges, right? You remember uh, Paul Abdul, Randy Jackson, and Simon Cowell. Well, that was on purpose. Um, they represent the three basic personality types. So what we often, when we are dealing with other people, particularly in difficult circumstances, we're usually drawn to get angry or to acquiesce. This is the two, this is what happens with us. And we're supposed to avoid both. Hmm. So Paula Abdul was gracious, but she wasn't truthful. And that would be most church people. They're gracious, but they're not telling the truth. Yeah, uh, They're afraid to. They want they want uh, approval, as as Dale mentioned earlier, and then um, and, and then the other extreme is to be aggressive, and that's Simon Cowell, right? He put half of America into, into counseling. I'm pretty sure <laughs> the first few years he's, he's he's tempered since, right? Um, but he was truthful, but he wasn't gracious. Yes, to be truthful and not have grace is like performing surgery with anesthesia. 
without anesthesia. It gets mm. the job done, but it causes unnecessary suffering. Yeah. Really, we need to be assertive. And that's Randy Jackson. He told the truth, uh, but uh, he put a little bit of sugar in with yes. it, as the expression goes. Or as Emily Dickinson wrote, um, tell the truth, but tell it slant. And I think there's <laughs> truth in that. Uh, I think there's even truth in, in what Aristotle called the noble lie as well. And I think we get some of that from the parable of the dishonest manager there in Luke, in yes. Jesus' own words. Anyway, so this is not an excuse to be a jerk. Um, I gave. I remember after the book came out, I got a letter from a counselor in Australia who told me her client had used my book as an excuse to go hunting anytime he wanted to. Uh, and he had two small kids at home. Uh, to which I said to the counselor, uh, I don't know what book he read, but that wasn't my book. You know, Jim, the yeah. word love appears more than more than 100 times in that book. It's really about a mature, muscular expression of love. That's what I was trying to do. No, I agree 100 percent. It reminds me of a quote that I use all the time from Eldridge. Let the world feel a full weight of who you are and let them deal with it. And so as a man, as a good man, we are going to walk in our full capacity as a man. And our families should be better off for it. They should be loved at a fuller capacity. They should be served at a fuller capacity. We should sacrifice at a fuller capacity. A nice guy does not have full capacity. Therefore, he can't love at a full capacity. So when a man says, I'm going to go hunting whenever I want, stop me. I go, whoa, you're not a man. You're a bully. You're you're a yeah. child. You, you, yep. you, you know, just because you have, you know, hair under your armpits does not make you a man. And so, no, I agree with you 100%. I could see how people would read into it, but I think maybe they came to the book with a bias already leaning that way. Because when you take your book at face value, it's freeing. Uh, it would make every man a better husband, a better father, a better community member, a better protector. And so, but you always have those people looking for a way out and they want somebody to blame while they take it. Speaking of that. Yeah, you, you can do, you do that with the, people do that with the Bible. You take one verse. Yes. And you and you run with it. I, I and I had said when that book came out. I think I said it even in the second, uh, the revised version. You got to read the whole thing before you do, do judgment on it because it would. My, I have a lot of problems, Jim. I'm going to share one of my problems, and that is <laughs> I've just been a contrarian. I've been a contrarian for a long time, and what happens with being a contrarian is there's so much burden of proof put upon you. Because when you start carving into sacred cows, I mean, people just scream and yell and they, they parse your words. And so because of that, and I get it, that's just how that's just how the world goes around. I get it. But all I ask for my reader is that you just give it time. It don't take one statement and go crazy with it. Give it time and yes. you'll see that it will help you and it'll help your family. It'll help your community you'll keep your faith because I tell you, if you stick with this niceness doctrine, Jesus is a horrible bore. After a while, you wonder uh, who needs to be saved, me or him. I mean, it's pretty awful. Well, you, in your book, you say, Hey, this is a guy that needs to be prayed for, not who we pray to. If we, if we go with that niceness doctrine <laughs> yes. and I would clarify something that you said, I, I, when I read your stuff and when we talk and we're friends, I, I don't think that you carve into the sacred cow I would say what you do is you shoot the elephant in the living room and get it out of there. So you're, you're so you're you're exposing something that's there and nobody's noticing. It's not sacred. It's just there, and people are like, "Wait, guys aren't guys are nice." That's how we are in the church. And you're saying, "Oh no, that's wrong." And another thing is, "Oh, and you're in middle school. You're a bully. That's the way it works." There's you know, no, that's wrong. And so you take the elephant, you shoot it with a high powered rifle, you drag it out of the living room, and then you carve into it. But the sacred cows are okay. The sacred cows are safe, so they can stay in India wherever they are. But uh, no, that's my take, man. So hey, but you speaking of that. On page 14 of your book, uh, the revised book, you talk about groups that didn't, that weren't so happy with you, and you said that the charismatic churches received you better than the, the mainline or fundamental, which really surprised me because typically in the fundamental churches, you have these kind of stoic types of men, where in the charismatic churches, yeah. which I would call myself more on the charismatic side of the doctrine, you have a lot more emotion. And s explain to me why you think the charismatic churches... Uh, were more receptive to you. Yeah, well, first of all, I'm about as charismatic as Bob Newhart. Right? <laughs> I mean, uh, it's it's something. I was really surprised, really, really surprised uh, when I was part of these men conferences. Uh, I was compared to Dick Cavett. 
And I thought, well, that's a good comparison. I like Dick Cavett type of thing, but he's not exactly the most charismatic dude. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think that the charismatics were open to new ideas. I think that's the, that's the big one. Uh, and I think that, uh, yeah, I, I think so. And I had a great time. Oh my goodness. Uh, I, I, I really, really appreciate it. I still uh, speak in them from time to time and really, really appreciated, um, that, uh, aspect of it and just such great people i mean some people really do have the gift of faith yes. i don't think i have it um, but i've met people who do and it is real and it is simple not simplistic but simple and um almost palpable i i, I wish i were that kind of person um and then in regard to the more fundamentalist yeah, I just I think um, obviously there are some of those who you know kind of pound the pulpit and all that and, and use aggression, but what um, that I, I didn't really uh, see that. What I got was from those who just keep the niceness doctrine going. Uh, they got to keep it going, and yeah. I, th I I think they they and by the way, having had experiences with some of these uh, pastors behind the scenes, I used to be the program director of a christian radio station i saw some behavior that would jim if you had hair would be curled um, <laughs> unbelievable behavior by some of these guys they they preach gentle jesus meek and mild on sunday and are as ruthless and mean mm. as any secular ceo on monday i saw it firsthand so they know it sells, Jim. It sells. It particularly sells the women yeah. um, who make the larger decision as to which churches you go to. So I understand that. I'm not putting them down for that. But I tell you, it's, you're winning a battle but losing a war uh, with that type of preaching. We need, we need all of him. You know, the, the word integrity doesn't mean avoiding sin. Mm -hmm. It means being whole. Yes. So if we're going to have integrity in our preaching, we've got to show the tough and tender side uh, of our Lord. And, and if not, we're, it's, we're going to be spiritually anemic. Yeah, I agree, man. That's that's so powerful. Well, we've been talking about <clears throat> how this this uh, new version has been, you know, written with wisdom, and and you know, you pulled some things out that were inflammatory. But then I'm going to read a quote to you that <laughs> that is oh, that I love. It's it, it, listen, you said this describing the Christian nice guy. You wrote, "They aren't overheated among us, but the underheated, low wattage, tepid, timid, fearful, anxious, but they're really nice." They worship at the altar of people's approval. Now, there's our man word for the day. So, so where did we go wrong as a church? Is the is this discrepancy why men aren't attracted to Christianity and why Muslim men are are men are more attracted to the Islamic faith than than Christians? You know, uh, David Murrow told us on an interview that in Islam, if the more religious you are, the more manly you you seem to be. But in Christianity, it's less so. Where did we go wrong? Oh, my goodness. That is a great question. I think a lot of what you said there uh, is true. You know, there was an interesting article in The Guardian years ago where this atheist went to Africa and said that uh, wherever Christianity went and took root, um, the men were more masculine. Mm. He said that the men looked you in the eye. They had an opinion and they stated it. And I would... Uh, during men's conferences in America, I would read that article and I would say, now tell me the truth. When you became a Christian, did that happen? Did you learn to look people in the eye and speak the truth in love? Or did you learn to acquiesce and just smile? And it, it comes from our preaching. Yes, it, that's, that's really where it comes from. The book that we pull from is an amazing book. And it, is, it has these wonderful complexities Jesus was not this dour two-dimensional figure. He was, well, by what is it, the fourth chapter of Mark, his friends and or family, depending on the translation, try to seize him because they believe he has lost his mind. Yes. If you think that he was the nicest guy to ever skip across ancient soil, read the gospel of Mark. And in fact, what I recommend, Jim, is for people to take out Jesus' name and well, in the book, I say, call him Jim. I call, call yeah. him you. I know. I and, saw that. Uh, I, I wasn't offended. <laughs> <laughs> change his name and ask yourself, is this a, I've often said, you know, it, it, 
none of us would want him for a roommate. No. I mean, he would be he would be so demanding sometimes. We would just eventually say, Jesus, can you stop it? I mean, these things you say are just like, wow, can't you be nice? Um, but, you know, he was this roaring prophet of change. He was radically orthodox. And, man, he was about his father's work. And it, it, the kingdom of, kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of man are two very different things. And if we haven't made enemies for the right reasons, uh, we haven't been following him. Well, you know, what you say inspires me because I'm a, I'm a ministry guy. I've been in ministry 30 years. And what I have noticed about ministry that is a little bit bothersome to me is that full-time ministry is an intellectually driven vocation. So if you go to school for numerous years, uh, you could have been a weak and soft, nice guy all through middle school, high school, and college who never had any leadership ability and nobody followed you but girls and maybe a dog. You go to get a piece of paper called a (laughs) Master's of Divinity, and, and you get a job because you have a piece of paper, and now you're put in this congregation with all these people, and only half of them will listen to you because you're soft and weak and intellectually driven. Well, the problem I've seen is that the men who go to these churches are construction workers. Uh, they're highly motivated. I mean, these are guys that—Theodore uh, Roosevelt has a quote, and I can't find it here, but he talks about Christian men that he ran into were nice and intellectually stimulating, but they couldn't last with the real guys out there. And I think if you're that intellectually driven guy yeah, who's I, I soft quote that in my book. Oh, okay. I, that's where I read it then. Yeah, it just to me, I think that is part of the problem is our pulpits are filled with guys who couldn't last on the soccer field or the football field or, or the work side or anywhere. Yeah. Can I jump in there for a second? I had a yeah. thought on that. Um, and, and that is that we have this mistaken notion, and I'm not putting – it's incomplete what I'm about to say. I'm not putting anyone down because I've, I followed this for a long time. The belief went like this. Um, the person I'm listening to has a degree in divinity. And um, so he knows what's in the Bible. So, but what we do from there is we make a big leap, Jim, we make a big leap and we say to ourselves, well, because he knows what's in the Bible, he knows how the world really works. And that is true, but it's also not true. Correct. And so in regard to like the human psyche, why do people do things? Um, you have to have wisdom outside of the Bible in order to answer many of these questions. You need to have wisdom, for example, outside the Bible to truly minister to people in marriage. And we don't believe that sometimes. Yeah. And when we don't believe that, it's the best of intentions that doesn't mean to cause harm, but it does cause harm and it can cause great harm uh, to people as well. No, that's so true. And, you know, I'm not bad mouthing pastors because I love pastors. I am a pastor, but it's troublesome to me. Yeah, my best friend's a pastor. Yeah, it's just troublesome to me that we are intimidated. It, I could see how pastors would really be offended by your book because it's exposing something in them. And some of them, not all of them, you know, but I can see that. We need to take a break and hear from our sponsor. We'll be right back at you. The Men in the Arena is a nonprofit organization with the mission to inspire men towards becoming their best version and changing their world. Every man in the arena matters. Our Men in the Arena closed Facebook forum for men is a great way to dialogue about manhood with men from around the world. There we have lively discussions on every topic of manhood imaginable. Join that group today because of the passion to see men get out of the bleachers and into the arena jim wants to offer some powerful resources to all men who visit our website at meninthearena.org give us your email and we'll send you a free pdf version of the field guide it's jim's 365 day bathroom book for men it's the study of manly words in the bible illustrated with great stories this is also a great resource for all our arena men we'll also add you to our weekly equipping blast including jim's personal blog prayer requests and weekly boots on the ground mission Men, the stakes are high. The pressure is on. Do you hear the roars of those you love and those anonymous voices in the bleachers pleading for you to enter the fight? Because when you get it, everyone wins. Now, back to our episode. Hey, Paul, on page 40 of your book, you wrote, quote, nice people actually oppose good people who rock the boat. 
even when headed towards God's will. Nice people cannot and do not contend with injustice and its corresponding evil that good people do. So theologically speaking, we just got done talking about MDiv. So theologically speaking, what have you discovered about the nature of God and niceness? The word nice is never used in Scripture to mm. define the Father, Son, or the Holy Spirit. The word nice um, is not a fruit of the Spirit. Kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. And mm-hmm. by the way, that list that Paul gives us in regards to the fruit of the Spirit, um, it doesn't claim to be exhaustive as mm-hmm. well. There could be other fruits of the Spirit too. Correct. One I'd like to throw out, I, I call it the vegetable of the Spirit, <laughs> is courage. I was just going to say courage. courage. I was just going to say that. Yeah, because God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but power and self-control, or courage or bravery and self-control. So there are other things there too but but see we don't want to hear about the vegetables of the spirit we don't we don't want to hear about the tougher virtues but i'll tell you when we want to hear the tougher virtues jim is when we're in trouble yes when the chips are down um you know people for example put down attorneys until they need one yes and then uh, suddenly attorneys are fantastic right so we don't want toughness until someone is beaten on our door and that's really a very immature way of looking at things and i'll say it again when the strong falter the weak suffer yes other people need our strength and we are hard-hearted if we don't donate our strength to them more than just tears if our tears about something do not move us to action those tears are about us they're wasted sentiment And there's a lot of that going on because we just don't want to get off our blessed assurance and do something (laughs) risky. And, and, and I look at, I look at the scriptures, I look at Jesus in particular, he really does call us to a a risky existence, not, not, um, um, oh, what would it be? Foolish, a whole, uh, a foolhardy, which is to be uh, courageous without wisdom. He's not calling us to that type of thing, but we are to make a dent in this world. And then what surprised me, Jim, was that when I started doing that uh, uh, from the protectors, because the protectors was born out of No More Christian Nice Guy, uh, we've helped more than 7,000 kids now across the world publicly apologize for bullying and related behavior. Now, Jim, you would think that the Christians I knew would stand up and applaud. And I'll just tell you that I've known a few people who actually opposed the work that, um, we do because we're out to, we're out to make real change not not just a little change here or there fundamental change and and there are people who have opposed an anti-bullying program and they call themselves christians so to which i say um you go you go talk to your maker on that one i can't imagine <laughs> i don't know how much judgment there is on the other side i know if, if there is that's part of it yeah that's laughable well you you just said we are called to make a dent in this world. And then in your book on page 111, you say this, Christian nice guys, this might be the answer to the question you just formed about why people would be opposed to anti-bullying uh, 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 education. Christian nice guys form a naive philosophy of life, quote, if I live small, my troubles will be few. I think this live small mentality, a scarcity mentality or a poverty spirit, I think this is what you're talking about. Hey, don't bother me. You're out there preaching a 7,000, you know, forcing, you know, compelling 7,000 students to repent. How dare you invade their space? If You should just not be noticed and be quiet and simple and small. Is that what you're talking about? Absolutely. And, I, and frankly, we fortify that with a very small view of Jesus. Now, of Absolutely. course, it's big in regard to bringing us salvation. Uh, but I tell you that he did far more uh, than that. That being pinnacle, don't get me wrong, far more than that. He showed us how to live. And this idea of gentle Jesus, meek and mild is so unbiblical. It's right up there with the Da Vinci Code, really. Yeah. If, if you think <laughs> about it, I mean, it, it is, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, uh, counterfeit. It really is counterfeit. And, and Jim, let me tell you, when the nice guy doctrine and that belief uh, hits a wall, and it hits a big wall, 
and I know this from more than 10 years of feedback from readers, it hits the wall when it goes up against the white-hot searchlight of life, which is marriage. And what has happened for many guys is they have to confront the niceness doctrine in marriage because their wife thought, you know, this guy went to Bible college and all that sort of stuff. And so she always thought that his mildness was kindness. But what she discovers pretty quickly and to her great dismay is uh, it's really people pleasing. Yes. And sadly, you get ahead as a people pleaser in church. Church. You really do. You're, you're considered one of the nicest people in the world. Oh, you rise to the top. Um, you're not good. And uh, yeah, you may not stay there long because there are things that will happen that if you don't learn how to, what I call, open a can of Jesus, you're going to lose your church because someone else is going to take it from yeah, you. And nefarious yeah. people will take it from you. So anyway, the white hot searchlight of life, tons of letters from men who said, man, I realize now I, I wasn't being kind. I was being fearful. What do I do? So that's a, uh, let me just say to our listeners right now, particularly the younger guys, um, you got some kids under your belt, life's gotten tight, and uh, it's pushing a number of stuff off to the, the side. Get a handle on your people-pleasing uh, knee-jerk reaction sooner than later. You may lose your wife. You may lose your kids if you don't. And I, I just speak from experience. I was in that boat for a while. I had to make a change. Um, and I'm glad I did. Well, you know, we keep talking about Jesus and this nice guy, you know, Christian nice guy. You know, this is the same Jesus who said, if you hurt a child, we're going to tie a millstone around your neck and throw you in the ocean. And so, you know, so we need to really think this through. We look at who Jesus was in the context of Scripture. And, and in chapter five, chapter five of your book, which is we just segue beautifully into what you were just talking about, is titled... How being a nice guy ruins love and marriage. As we're talking about this, I'm reminded of Jesus who said, hey, if you hurt a child, throw a millstone around this guy's neck and throw him overboard. And so this is this is not a nice statement. And it's, it's a beautiful segue into chapter five that you had titled, How Being a Nice Guy Ruins Love and Marriage. And you, you said this on page 123, and I just love this quote, love quoting you. You said, mentally balanced wives don't respect passivity. A passive husband is an unreliable husband, and this makes his wife anxious because she knows it will leave her and the children open to difficulties that threaten the family. That is a powerful statement. Do you want to expand on that, Paul? Well, I'll tell you what, any marriage counselor will tell you that's the case. Any marriage counselor that's been around for a while will tell you, and they've seen it. Uh, They've seen it. You know, I I use the term mentally balanced on purpose uh, because there are those (laughs) who, who, who aren't, uh, you know, I call it, they marry what they need. Right. And so there are some women who really want to marry a passive man so they can control him, uh, and dominate and have their will at, at all turns. That's still a dangerous game, uh, because that guy's not going to go out and, uh, represent the family well, particularly by way of making an income, for example. And eventually the wheels probably going to come off that as, as well. They tend to marry uh, cowardice men. Uh, so they can continue to, to dominate them. But this is really where the rubber meets the road for most yes. people, for most guys. It is their marriage. Uh, and I've got so many letters, Jim, on this front. You would like to think that the main reason why guys would want to confront this really unbiblical view of life is that they want to get more in line with God. But my experience has been that that hasn't been the case. What brings them to the crucible of, or the cauldron, more example, better, better <laughs> analogy, to the cauldron of, of um, standing up to the Christian nice guy problem is when they are in the process of losing love or they've lost it. That is what has brought them there. And to which I say, don't let it get to that point. Do something about it now. I went to and saw a counselor who helped me get uh, understand why I had such a people-pleasing uh, mentality. I had a decent amount of abuse as a kid, not just a little bit here or there, but it was sustained. Yeah. Sustained amount of abuse and bullying. And that causes you, that, that changes your operating system. I didn't know it had changed my operating system. But Jim, I had moments of clarity. And moments of clarity, I'll give you one example. 
I remember I had two little kids taking a shower, getting ready for uh, work. And I heard footsteps coming down the hallway. And I thought someone was going to come into the bathroom and start uh, hitting me while I was taking a shower. That had never happened in my <laughs> my home. Wow. In my marriage. Uh, and, and I thought, I, I was like, wow, now that's odd. Why did I think that? But like you, Jim, you know, when you're younger, you got small kids, man, you're just running. So I didn't honor that insight into my mind, into my operating system. I didn't honor it. And I should have because, uh, you know, I had been pounded as a kid, uh, just sucker punched so many times and ambushed Mm. and all that sort of stuff by my own family. So uh, that type of stuff will have an effect. And it had an effect on me. It led me to people pleasing. Um, I didn't want to be noticed, which was, which was tough, right? Cause I was in the gifted program as a kid. So I had a gifted IQ. You can't help but be noticed. Just can't yeah. help it. Yeah. And, uh, so I try, I tried to kill, I tried to kill that. Uh, so I wouldn't be noticed, but it, I couldn't kill it. And, um, so I had to really confront some of these really irrational fears, which led to my people pleasing and doing so I'd say, Jim, it would be a sin if I hadn't done that. Yes. And for our listeners now who fall in that category, it is a sin if you don't do something about that. It would be as much of a sin as if you are fat and out of shape and you're about to give yourself type 2 diabetes. You need to change how you're, you're doing your life. And it's a sin if you don't. Because our the, the will of God is for us to be free. Yes. It's not to be... The, counting beans about sin and stuff. And though that's important because these, these are guardrails to our lives, these admonitions, his goal is for us to be free. I forget who it was. It Arenas said that the, uh, the glory of God is man fully alive. I'm not saying that's completely always 100% the only truth about scripture, but it's a big one. Yes. I think that's the meta narrative that we get and confronting the, these crazy thoughts in your head are part of that free and to his glory. Well, and, and you talked about operating systems and I think that confronting operating systems that are broken down, I mean, in business, in life, you know, if, if you mentioned being overweight, you have to confront that and deal with that. Or if you are uh, a nice guy, you have to confront that and deal with it. And, and I think that marriage, just like your title of your book, the title of your book, chapter five, I think marriage does change your operating system because I entered marriage thinking this and I realized it was this. And what I have learned about my marriage yeah. in particular, yeah. you know, in the Bible, and maybe this is a misinterpretation, but when, when Adam and Eve sin, God tells her, your desire will be for your husband. But a lot of people interpret that in the Hebrew to be, your desire will be to control him. And what I have learned is that if I allow my wife's desire, whether that be insecurity, a drive for uh, control, whatever it is, if I allow her to fully function in that mode, I make her worse of a woman, worse of a human, and I become a passive, nice male who's ruining my marriage because I'm afraid to confront and battle the issues my wife needs me to fight for her over. Love fights. Um, you know, you just reminded me, <laughs> you reminded me of something on that front. And it's something that might be helpful to, uh, I'm, I'm a small guy and my parents are Irish immigrants. I'm basically an elf, right? I mean, I'm a tall elf, but I'm an elf. <laughs> and um, so I don't have to worry about this. Uh, but bigger guys in regard to um, uh, conflict with their wives, I was, I, I don't know if you know, I work with the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, I do anti-bullying work with the Baltimore no, Ravens. No, I didn't. And, uh, yeah, 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 it's a lot of fun. Get, I some, want Lamar on my show. In the get, room, Jim. get me Lamar, baby. Get me Lamar. <laughs> uh, I tell you, man, I, you go in and you think, man, I always thought people this large were urban legends. I mean, it's pretty amazing. They should have their own zip code, some of these guys. Oh, giant um, humans. Anyway, so, oh, my God. And the ability to move. I get to watch their practices. Oh, my goodness. The stunning, these big guys, the explosion that comes out of them. Anyway, it, it's an awesome thing to witness. But one of the people who worked there, I've gotten to know pretty well, um, great guy, very wise man. Um, he went to a marriage counselor and because his wife, you know, he's a big football player. He doesn't play anymore, retired. And uh, when they would disagree, they're passionate, not violent. 
but his, you know, his wife is tiny. And so a counselor told him that when he disagrees with his wife, he's supposed to get on one knee <laughs> to kind of equal out the physicalness of things. Yeah. I thought, you know what? That that's not found in the Bible, but that is found in the Bible. That's wisdom right there. Yeah. Uh, that's wisdom. Yeah. Well, I think we need to be able to fight for our marriages. And sometimes that means fighting, quote, arguing with our spouses, you know, because if my wife is the most important person on the planet, and she should be, Jesus is the most important in the universe. My wife is the most important person on the planet, then I need to be willing to fight for her to be her best version. And sometimes that means I have to actually fight her, not physically, but to, to, to engage yeah. her in passionate disagreements about different things. And she needs to be the same for me if she wants to be the best, me to be my best. And anybody who refuses to do so is going to have a marriage that's not at its best version. And that's this Christian nice guy thing comes to play. It does. Let me add to that, too, is that if we aren't fighting, it's often a sign that we've given up as well. They've just given up. And uh, that's dangerous, too, because the, the eye begins to wander. Yeah. Well, and you see that all the time, right? We see this all the time with men who have uh, adulterous affairs with other women. They've been beaten down by their wife so long, for whatever reason, that they give up. Well, then they show up to work, and their secretary says something like, well, if I was married to you, I would never treat you like that. You're way better than that. And that's all it takes over and over and over again. And so here are these high-level executives that go to their home— and become weak sauce puppy nice guys. Yes, they do. And one thing too, when you when we were talking about disagreeing, the one thing I wanted to throw out because I think men are prone toward this is that we will express our anger uh, in a very uh, dangerous way through sarcasm. We have yes. to avoid that in in speaking this way. We need to speak the tr truth in love as best we can. And when we don't, we need to apologize. <laughs> yeah, we need to be quick to say I'm sorry. So what would you say to this compartmentalization of men? Like a man can be a high-powered executive here and be a good guy, driven, assertive, and then get home and turn to weak sauce. What would you say to these guys who tend to be very compartmentalized in regards to overcoming this niceness doctrine? Well, uh, you know, there's a word for that. The word diabolical Ooh. means to compartmentalize the most diabolical people in the world um, have this ability to be one person in one setting and another person in another. It's a very dangerous uh, way to be. We should be whole. Uh, people who are compartmentalized do not have, have integrity. I'll just go back to that word again. Mm -hmm. Integrity does not mean avo just avoiding sin. It means to be whole. So for example, you're in a home and uh, the foundation is off. One side is higher than the other. That home lacks structural integrity. It's out of balance. Well, the same thing is true for us as, as humans. Um, when we have certain attributes but not others, we're not whole. And in doing so, we don't have integrity. Usually, we compartmentalize um, most of the time due to fear. And so we should see the role that fear plays. Also, there are people who are just flat out malevolent. A very mm. helpful book for Christian nice guys is the book called Almost a Psychopath. Whoa. Because nice guy, psychopath, yeah, it's interesting. We think that psychopaths are, you know, like just 2% of the U.S. population, whatever. What's interesting, uh, according to these authors, they're from Harvard, um, they say, you know, the true psychopaths after a while they're dangerous, but they may not cause as much harm as the almost psychopath. These are people who have some of the characteristics, but not others. Like there's 12 characteristics, I believe, of a psychopath. It's the almost psychopath that causes tremendous problems in our lives, in our churches, uh, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. And I'm just telling you from experience, the niceness doctrine doesn't work with these guys. They turn the other cheek which, by the way, has nothing to do with accepting abuse from another person. Putting It's the number, it's the most tortured scripture in the theater of bullying. And uh, putting context, it has to do with having a generous spirit. And that's what Jesus says at the end of that very interesting uh, part of scripture. Anyway, um, the niceness doctrine doesn't work with 
people who are roughly 50% of the U.S. population, which doesn't sound like much, Jim, when you consider that's about one out of every eight people you meet could wow. fall in the category of the of the almost psychopath. Their their love language is, is power and consequences and speak it to them. Well, it reminds me of that short story that we read in college, The Death of a Salesman. And that was, what was his name? Do you remember that book? And he was that nice guy and he kind of lost it, you know? I can't remember the name of that guy's. Do you remember his name? Anyway, I can't remember anymore. Oh my goodness. Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman played him yeah. uh, in, the, in the movie. Right. I can't yeah. remember the yeah. guy's yeah. name. Anyway, Death of a Salesman. It's uh, that Arthur, whole. Arthur, Arthur Miller is the. Is... Yes. Yes. It's this nice guy thing, right? Oh. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> 250 and the rage and the rage on the other side. Yes. So that's what we're talking. Anyway. Hey man, I, again, thanks a lot, Paul. This is a great book. I highly recommend it again. This would be my top 10 lists of books for Christian guys to read. So guys, uh, pick up your copy. Where can they get a copy, Paul? Oh, wherever books are, are sold. A lot of books are sold online now, so they could, they could pick it up there as well. Uh, Jim, do you mind if I just say one thing about, uh, another book free us from bullying? It was a follow-up, really, to, to some degree, no more Christian nice guy. Uh, speaking at a lot of men's conferences, and I noticed that men love – when I talk about justice and standing up for the weak, you could almost smell the adrenaline uh, in the room. It was like a locker room. And, uh, and and so I looked into where justice was missing, long story short, uh-huh. adolescent bullying, and uh, came up with the book Free Us From Bullying, which is a Christian response to, to bullying that is uh, is definitely not a weak response. It's a, a truthful, loving response. It's still a very muscular response to the number one form of child abuse in the world. And, we're, and currently, Jim, we're missing. The faith community is missing in that battle. This book is designed to get us into that battle uh, to the glory of God and the benefit of man. Yeah, I appreciate that uh, book. And Hey, man, thanks for coming on the show so much, guys. Hey, guys, what are we going to do next? What are you going to do in response to this podcast episode? So I have a boots on the ground item for you guys. I want you to identify one area in your life where you're like Charmin toilet paper. You know, you're nice and soft. It may be your physical body. It may be a relationship. It may be an issue with a coworker or boss. It may be an injustice that you are ignoring. I want you to find out one of those areas. I want you to focus on fixing it. So that you become a good man, a strong man, not a nice and soft man. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Men in the Arena podcast. Remember, we are a crowdfunded nonprofit organization that exists to help you become the best version of yourself. And because of a group of donors like yourself, we're able to offer our resources free to active military, missionaries, and men in underdeveloped nations. Guys, until next time, feel the wet sand on the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty, grind it out, be a good man, not a nice man. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men from around the world and find out the type of dad you are.